My new anthology, A Poem for Every Day of the Year, contains poems for each and every day of the year. Some of the poems commemorate the date of a war or a battle. Others celebrate days such as the New Year, the first television broadcast, and the date of the American election. For tonight's show, as in the book, we're going to travel together through a calendar year. Poetry, as Dylan Thomas explained, is what in a poem makes you laugh, cry, prickle, be silent, or makes your toenails twinkle. The mission, my mission, is to bring poetry alive and always to remember what T.S. Eliot said, poetry can communicate before it is understood. I've assembled six wonderful actors, men and women whose job it is to bring human emotion to life on screen, on TV, and on stage. Who better to communicate poems, to scoop the words off the page and make them into a living, breathing, surprising human experience? And to capture it all, an illustrator with an almost magical talent whose pen will harness their voices tonight as he live draws the poems. Could you please welcome the award-winning artist, Chris Riddell, and actors... Samuel West, Adjoa Ando, Simon Russell Beale, Helen McCrory, Stephen Mangan, and Joanna Lumley. now hold back your applause until the end of the show. This first poem sits in the anthology on January the 1st. Beginning a new year is like opening a new book onto its very first page. Jackie Kay is the current Scots Macker, or Scottish Poet Laureate, and her poem is a toast to all of us at the start of a year. Promise by Jackie Kay. Remember the time of year when the future appears like a blank sheet of paper, a clean calendar, a new chance. On thick white snow, you vow fresh footprints, then watch them go with the wind's hearty gust. Fill your glass. Here's to us promises made to be broken made to last. Poems written for particular dates or days, or to remember certain historical or personal events, are called occasional poems. In this poem, the occasion isn't a great battle or a political event, but just a bitterly cold January day. The characters in the poem even start to argue about what counts as an occasion. Occasional poem by Jacqueline Woodson. Miss Marcus says that an occasional poem is a poem written about something important or special that's gonna happen or already did. Think of a specific occasion, she says, and write about it. Like what? Lamont says. 
He's all slouched down in his seat. I don't feel like writing about no occasion. How about your birthday? Miss Marcus says. What about it? It's just a birthday. Comes in June, and it ain't June, Lamont says. As a matter of fact, he says, it's January and it's snowing. Then his voice gets real low, and he says, and when it's January and all cold like this, feels like June's a long, long ways away. The whole class looks at Miss Marcus. Some of the kids are nodding. Outside, the sky looks like it's made out of metal, and the cold, cold air is rattling the window panes and coming underneath them too. I've seen Lamote's cot. It's grey and the sleeves are short. It's down, but it looks like a lot of the feathers fell out a long time ago. Miss Marcus got a nice coat. It's down too, but real puffy. So maybe when she's inside it, she can't even tell January from June. Then write about January, Miss Marcus says. That's an occasion. But she looks a little bit sad when she says it. Like she's sorry she ever brought the whole occasional poem thing up. <laughs> I was going to write about Mama's funeral. But Lamont and Miss Marcus going back and forth zapped all the ideas from my head. I guess them arguing on a Tuesday in January's an occasion. So I guess this is an occasional poem. <laughs> the 26th of January is Australia Day. It marks the 1788 arrival of British ships on the island and the raising of the British flag. It is considered to be a controversial holiday by those who see it as a celebration of the European colonization of native people and their land. Ujeral Nunakal was an Aboriginal Australian poet and activist and the first Aboriginal to publish a book of poetry. In this poem, she focuses on one particular custom of the Nunakal tribe, Ballad of the Totems by Ujeru Nunakal. My father was a Nunakal man and kept old tribal way. His totem was the carpet snake, whom none must ever slay. But mother was of Peewee clan, and loudly she expressed the daring view that carpet snakes were nothing but a pest. Now, one lived inside with us in full immunity, for no one dared to interfere with father's stern decree. A mighty fellow, ten feet long, and as we lay in bed, we kids could watch him round a beam not far above our head. Only the dog was scared of him, We'd hear its whines and growls, but mother fiercely hated him because he took her fowls. You should have heard her diatribes that flowed in angry torrents with words you'd never see in print, except in D.H. Lawrence. <laughs> I kill that robber, she would scream, fierce as a spotted cat. You see that bulge inside of him? My speckly hen made that. But father's loud and strict command made even mother quake. I think he'd sooner kill a man than kill a carpet snake. That reptile was a greedy guts. And as each bulge digested, he'd come down on the hunt at night, as appetite suggested. We heard his stealthy, slithering sound across the earthen floor, while the dog gave a startled yelp and bolted out the door. Then... 
over in the chicken yard, hysterical fowls gave tongue, loud frantic squawks accompanied by the barking of the mung, until at last the racket passed. And then to solve the riddle, next morning he was back up there with a new bulge in his middle. When father died, we wailed and cried. Our grief was deep and sore. And strange to say, from that sad day, the snake was seen no more. The wise old men explained to us, it was his tribal brother, and that is why it done a guy. But some looked hard at mother. <laughs> she seemed to have a secret smile. Her eyes were smug and wary. She looked about as innocent as the cat that ate the pet canary. We never knew, but anyhow, to end this tragic rhyme, I think we all had snake for tea one day about that time. <laughs> the 27th of January is designated Holocaust Memorial Day and commemorates the liberation of Auschwitz on this date in 1945. Pastor Martin Niemöller's lines on the dangers of political apathy are a reminder that we must speak up and stand up for others and not just ourselves. And we must never let the horrors of the Holocaust be repeated. First They Came for the Jews by Martin Niemöller. First They Came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. On the 19th of February, 1672, Sir Isaac Newton published his work on rainbows after refracting light through a prism. The Guyanese poet, John Agard, here makes a rainbow the occasion for some reflections on the nature of God. When you see the rainbow, you know, God know, why doing? One big smile across the sky. I tell ya, God got style, the man got style. <laughs> when you see rain cloud pass and the rainbow make a show, I tell ya, is God doing limbo? The man doing limbo. But sometimes, you know, when I see the rainbow so full of glow and curving like she bearing a child, I just want to know if God ain't a woman. If that is so, the woman got style, man. <laughs> she got style. <laughs> the 8th of March is International Women's Day a celebration of the political, social, and cultural achievements of women everywhere. This wonderful poem is by a Pulitzer Prize-winning American poet. It tells us reassuringly, there is order to the world. Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. 
You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair, your despair, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, and the mountains and the rivers. And meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. April Fool's Day is a day for jokes, pranks and chicanery. The earliest recorded foolishness on the 1st of April is a trick played by a fox in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which date from the 14th century. This nonsense poem, The Walrus and the Carpenter, is full of trickery. It originally appeared in the late 19th century in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. Alice's conclusion in the novel about The Walrus and the Carpenter was, well... They were both very unpleasant characters. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If only this were cleared away. They said. It would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose... The walrus said. ...that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, <laughs> and shed a bitter tear. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us. The walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the briny beach. We cannot do it more than four to give a hand to each. The eldest oyster looked at him. But never a word, he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. <laughs> Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four. And thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more, all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low. 
and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. (laughs) No hurry, said the carpenter. They thanked him much for that. A loaf of bread, the walrus said, is what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar besides are very good indeed. Now, if you're ready, oysters dear, we can begin to feed. But not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come. And you are very nice. The carpenter said nothing but... Cut us another slice. (laughs) I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. (laughs) It seems a shame... The walrus said. ...to play them such a trick. After we brought them out so far and made them trot so quick. The carpenter said nothing but... The butter's spread too thick. I weep for you. The walrus said. I deeply sympathise. With sobs and tears, he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer came there none. And this was scarcely odd, because they'd eaten every one. (laughs) In 1904, Helen Keller became the first deaf and blind person to graduate from university. Her remarkable story can be traced back to the 5th of April, 1887, when she learnt her first words. Her hand was held under the flow water from a pump, and the letters for water were spelt on her other palm. This ingenious new poem imagines that experience from two perspectives at once, sightlessness and deafness. First word after Helen Keller by Rachel Rooney. This thing she's feeling, this thing she's feeling, is nameless cold in her other palm, that can't be held, is nameless warm. This unheard sound, this unseen sound, its unseen lettering, its unheard lettering, drums her outstretched skin, drums her outstretched skin, like fingertips like drops of rain. This thing is spilling over. This thing is spelling water. The third Sunday in June is Father's Day. It is a relatively new holiday, which only entered into the calendar after the Second World War. Roger McGough, who came to fame as one of the Liverpool poets of the 1960s, has written this poem as a homage to fathers everywhere. The Way Things Are, by Roger McGough. No, the candle is not crying, it cannot feel pain. Even telescopes like the rest of us grow bored. Bubblegum will not make the hair soft and shiny. The duller the imagination, the faster the car. I am your father, and this is the way things are. (laughs) When the sky is looking the other way, do not enter the forest. 
No, the wind is not caused by the rushing of clouds. An excuse is as good a reason as any. A lighthouse launched will not go far. I am your father, and this is the way things are. No, old people do not walk slowly because they have plenty of time. <laughs> Gardening books, when buried, will not flower. Though lightly worn, a crown may leave a scar. I am your father, and this is the way things are. No, the red woolly hat has not been put on the railing to keep it warm. When one glove is missing, both are lost. Today's craft fair is tomorrow's car boot sale. The guitarist gently weeps, not the guitar. <laughs> I am your father, and this is the way things are. Pebbles work best without batteries. The deck chair will fail as a unit of currency. Even though your shadow is shortening, it does not mean you are growing smaller. Moonbeam, sadly, will not survive in a jar. I am your father, and this is the way things are. For centuries, the bullet remained quietly confident that the gun would be invented. A drowning surrealist will not appreciate the concrete life belt. No guarantee, my last goodbye is au revoir. I am your father, and this is the way things are. Do not become a prison officer unless you know what you're letting someone else in for. The thrill of being a shower curtain will soon pull. No trusting hand awaits the falling star. I am your father, and I am sorry, but this is the way things are. As the academic year comes to a close, some need to be reminded to stop studying, and others don't. In Wordsworth's poem, the narrator teaches his friend that it can be good to close your textbooks and to learn from the book of nature instead. The poem is known for the much quoted criticism of science, We Murder to Dissect. The Tables Turned by William Wordsworth. Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? The sun above the mountain's head, a freshening luster mellow through all the long green fields has spread his first sweet evening yellow. Books, tis a dull and endless strife. Come, hear the woodland linnet, how sweet his music. On my life there's more of wisdom in it, and hark how blithe the throstle sings. He too is no mean preacher. Come forth into the light of things. Let nature be your teacher. She has a world of ready wealth, our minds and hearts to bless, spontaneous wisdom breathed by health, truth breathed by cheerfulness. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good than all the sages can. Sweet is the law that nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things. We murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art. Close up those barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches 
and receives. On the 7th of July, 1801, Toussaint Louverture became Governor-General of Saint-Domingue, later renamed Haiti, having successfully led the enslaved people of the island to freedom. Agard's poem is about Louverture, but it is also about the fact that the history of marginalised people like Louverture and Mary Seacole largely goes untaught in British schools. Checking out me history by John Agard. Them tell me, them tell me what them want to tell me. Bandage up me eye with me own history. Blind me to me own identity. Them tell me about 1066 and all that. Them tell me about Dick Whittington and them cat. But Toussaint Louverture, no, them never tell me about that. Toussaint, a slave with, with vision, lick back Napoleon battalion and first black republic born. Toussaint, the thorn to the French. Toussaint, the beacon of the Haitian revolution. Them tell me about the man who discovered the balloon and the cow who jumped over the moon. Tell me about the dish that ran away with the spoon. But them never tell me about Nanny, the maroon. Nanny, sea for woman of mountain dream. Fire woman struggle, hopeful stream to freedom river. Them tell me about Lord Nelson and Waterloo, but them never tell me about Shaka, the great Zulu. Them tell me about Columbus and 1492, but what happened to the Caribs and the Arawaks too? Them tell me about Florence Nightingale and Shilamp and how Robin Hood used to camp. Them tell me about old King Cole was a merry old soul, but them never tell me about Mary Seacole. From Jamaica, she traveled far to the Crimean War. She volunteered to go, and even when the British said no, she still braved the Russian snow. A healing star among the wounded, a yellow sunrise to the dying. Them tell me, them tell me what them want to tell me. But now, I checking out me own history. I carving out me identity. The Battle of the Nile was a major naval battle fought between the British Navy and Napoleon's French Navy from the 1st to the 3rd of August, 1798. This poem recounts a true event that occurred during the Battle of the Nile. Generations of schoolchildren learnt this poem during the 19th and 20th centuries, and the first line of the poem became very famous indeed. The writer, Felicia Hemans, wrote this note explaining the poem. Young Casabianca, a boy about 13 years old, son of the Admiral of the Orient, remained at his post in the Battle of the Nile after the ship had taken fire and all the guns had been abandoned and perished in the explosion of the vessel 
when the flames had reached the powder. Casabianca by Felicia Hemans. The boy stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled. The flame that lit the battle's wreck shone round him o'er the dead. Yet beautiful and bright he stood, as born to rule the storm, a creature of heroic blood, a proud though childlike form. The flames rolled on, he would not go without his father's word. That father, faint in death below, his voice no longer heard. He called aloud, say, father, say if yet my task is done. He knew not that the chieftain lay unconscious of his son. Speak, father, once again he cried, if I may yet be gone. And but the booming shots replied, and fast the flames rolled on. Upon his brow he felt their breath, and in his waving hair, and looked from that lone post of death in still yet brave despair, and shouted but once more aloud, My father, must I stay? While o'er him fast, through sail and shroud, the wreathing fires made way. They wrapped the ship in splendor wild, they caught the flag on high, and streamed above the gallant child like banners in the sky. There came a burst of thunder sound, the boy, oh, where was he? Ask of the winds that far around with fragments strewed the sea, with mast and helm and pennon fair that well had borne their part. But the noblest thing which perished there was that young faithful heart. Heman's Casabianca gave rise to many imitations and parodies, all of which play with the opening image of the boy on the burning deck. Spike Milligan's version is among the best known. The boy stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled. The twit. <laughs> Michael Palin might be best known as a member of the comedy outfit, Monty Python, but he is also a master of the limerick. A handsome young fellow called Frears was attracted to girls by the ears. He'd traverse the globe for a really nice lobe and the sight would reduce him to tears. <laughs> this next poem by the American poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti is an example of ekphrasis, a Greek term for when a visual work of art, like a painting, is described in a textual work of art like a poem. If it's true that a picture can paint a thousand words, then how should words go about painting a picture? Here, Ferlinghetti takes Marc Chagall's Equestrienne, a very strange painting in which a couple ride a horse who is munching bizarrely on a violin, and he transforms it into a story about the painter himself. Don't Let That Horse, by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Don't let that horse eat that violin, <laughs> cried Chagall's mother. <laughs> but he kept right on painting 
and became famous and kept on painting the horse with violin in mouth. <laughs> and when he finally finished it, he jumped up upon the horse and rode away, waving the violin, and then, with a low bow, gave it to the first naked nude he ran across. <laughs> and there were no strings attached. <laughs> This next poem is a reflection on decisions and decision-making, and on the notion that life could have worked out differently if we ourselves had chosen differently in the past. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and, sorry I could not travel both and be one traveller, Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warmed them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet, knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The world's first television broadcast took place on the 2nd of November, 1936, when BBC engineers set up a transmission mast at Alexandra Palace. This is Roald Dahl's poetic take on television from 1964's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Television by Roald Dahl. The most important thing we've learned... So far as children are concerned... ...is never, never, never let them near your television set. Or better still, just don't install the idiotic thing at all. In almost every house we've been, we've watched them gaping at the screen. They loll and slop and lounge about and stare until their eyes pop out. Last week in someone's place we saw a dozen eyeballs on the floor. They sit and stare and stare and sit until they're hypnotised by it. Until they're absolutely drunk with all that shocking, ghastly junk. Oh, yes, we know it keeps them still. They don't climb out the windowsill. They never fight or kick or punch. They leave you free to cook the lunch and wash the dishes in the sink. But did you ever stop to think, to wonder just exactly what this does to your beloved tot? It rots the senses in their heads. It kills imagination dead. It clogs and clutters up the mind. It makes a child so dull and blind. He can no longer understand a fantasy, a fairyland. His brain becomes as soft as cheese. His powers of thinking rust and freeze. He cannot think, he only sees. All right, you'll cry, all right, you'll say. But if we take the set away, what shall we do to entertain our darling children? Please explain. We'll answer this by asking you, what used the darling things to do? How used they keep themselves contented before this monster was invented? Have you forgotten? Don't you know? 
we'll say it very loud and slow. They used to read. They'd read and read. And read and read. And then proceed to read some more. Great Scott. Gadzooks. One half their lives was reading books. The nursery shelves had books galore. Books cluttered up the nursery floor. And in the bedroom, by the bed, more books were waiting to be read. Such wondrous, fine, fantastic tales of dragons, gypsies, queens and whales. And treasure isles. And distant shores. Where smugglers rode with muffled oars. And pirates wearing purple pants. And sailing ships and elephants. And cannibals crouching round the pot, stirring away at something hot. It smells so good, what can it be? Good, good gracious, gracious, it's, it's Penelope. Penelope. <laughs> the younger ones had Beatrice Potter. With Mr Todd, the dirty rotter. And Squirrel Nutkin, Pigling Bland. And Mrs Tiggy Winkle, and... Just how the camel got his hump. And how the monkey lost his rump. And Mr Toad. And bless my soul, there's Mr Rat and Mr Mole. Oh, books, what books they used to know, those children living long ago. So please, oh please, we beg. We pray, go, go throw, throw your, your TV set, set away. away. And in its place, you can install a lovely bookshelf on the wall. And fill the shelves with lots of books, ignoring all the dirty looks. The screams and yells and bites and kicks. And children hitting you with sticks. Fear not, because we promise you that in about a week or two of having nothing else to do... They'll now begin to feel the need of having something good to read. And once they start, oh boy... Oh boy, you'll watch the slowly growing joy that fills their hearts. They'll grow so keen, you'll wonder what they'd ever seen in that ridiculous machine. That nauseating, foul, unclean, repulsive, repulsive television, television screen. screen. And later, each and every kid will love you more for what you did. <laughs> Election Day in the United States of America falls on the first Tuesday after November the 1st. President Donald Trump was elected on the 8th of November, 2016. The Leader by Roger McGough. <laughs> I want to be the leader! <laughs> I want to be the leader! Can I be the leader? <laughs> can I? I can! <laughs> Promise! Promise! <laughs> Yippee! <laughs> I'm the leader! I'M THE LEADER! <laughs> OK, what shall we do? <laughs> Armistice Day is November the 11th. John Kipling, who was known as Jack, was the only son of the writer Rudyard Kipling. When the First World War broke out, his father used his influence to get Jack a military commission, despite his poor eyesight. Jack went missing in the Battle of Luz, six weeks after his 18th birthday. His body was not found in the aftermath of the battle, and it was not until 1992 that his grave was identified. Kipling later wrote a two-line poem, Epitaph of War. If any question why we died, 
tell them because our fathers lied. And he also wrote this, My Boy Jack by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, have you heard news of My Boy Jack? Not this tide. When do you think he'll be coming back? Not with this blow, wind blowing and this tide. Has anyone else had word of him? Not this tide, for what is sunk will hardly swim. Not with this wind blowing and this tide. Oh dear, what comfort can I find? None this tide, nor any tide, except he did not shame his kind, not even with that wind blowing and that tide. Then hold your head up all the more, this tide and every tide, because he was the son you bore and gave to that wind blowing and that tide. On the 14th of November, 1960, in New Orleans, Louisiana, a six-year-old girl named Ruby Bridges became the first African-American child to attend a previously all-white elementary school. She was escorted by armed guards who protected her from crowds of angry protesters. When we think back to our own first days at school and the anxiety that comes from being a new face in any context, this compelling poem helps us to imagine how Ruby Bridges might have felt. My First Day at School by Michaela Morgan. I remember Mama scrubbed my face hard, plaited my hair tight, perched a hopeful white bow on my head like a butterfly hoping for flight. She shone my shoes, black, shiny, neat. Another hopeful bow on each toe to give wings to my feet. My dress was standing to attention, stiff with starch. My little battle dress. And now, my march. Two marshals march in front of me. Two marshals march behind of me. The people scream and jeer at me. Their faces are red, not white. On the 2nd of December, 1805, Napoleon fought the Battle of Austerlitz against a Russian and Austrian army, triumphing over them in what is now remembered as his greatest victory. Your history teachers might have focused on Napoleon's astonishing achievements as a ruler and a general. The Czech writer, Miroslav Holub, writing in the mid 20th century, takes Napoleon for the subject of his poem, which is set in a school classroom. Napoleon by Miroslav Holub. Children, when was Napoleon Bonaparte born? Asks teacher. A thousand years ago, the children say. A hundred years ago, 
the children say. Last year, the children say. No one knows. <laughs> children, what did Napoleon Bonaparte do? Asks teacher. Won a war, the children say. Lost a war, the children say. No one knows. <laughs> Our butcher had a dog called Napoleon, says František. The butcher used to beat him, and the dog died of hunger a year ago. And all the children are now sorry for Napoleon. <laughs> Human Rights Day falls on the 10th of December every year. It is a United Nations campaign to defend the rights of those who are oppressed, disrespected, or discriminated against. Auden's World War II poem about a German-Jewish couple conveys a sense of what it is like to have your more basic human rights denied and to be an outsider wherever you go. Refugee Blues by W.H. Auden. Say the city has 10 million souls. Some are living in mansions. Some are living in holes. Yet there's no place for us, my dear. Yet there's no place for us. Once we had a country and we thought it fair. Look in the atlas and you'll find it there. We cannot go there now, my dear, we cannot go there now. In the village churchyard there grows an old yew. Every spring it blossoms anew. Old passports can't do that, my dear. Old passports can't do that. The consul banged the table and said, if you've got no passport, you're officially dead. But we are still alive, my dear, but we are still alive. Went to a committee, they offered me a chair, asked me politely return next year. But where shall we go today, my dear? Where shall we go today? Came to a public meeting, the speaker got up and said, if we let them in, they will steal our daily bread. He was talking of you and me, my dear, he was talking of you and me. Thought I heard the thunder rumbling in the sky. It was Hitler over Europe saying they must die. Oh, we were on his mind, my dear. Oh, we were on his mind. Saw a poodle in a jacket fastened with a pin. Saw a door opened and a cat let in. But they weren't German Jews, my dear. They weren't German Jews. Went down the harbour and stood on the quay. Saw the fish swimming as if they were free. Only ten feet away, my dear. Only ten feet away. Walked through a wood, saw the birds in the trees. They had no politicians and sang at their ease. They weren't the human race, my dear. They weren't the human race. Dreamed I saw a building with a thousand floors, a thousand windows and a thousand doors. Not one of them was ours, my dear. Not one of them was ours. Stood on a great plain in the falling snow. Ten thousand soldiers marched to and fro, looking for you and me, my dear. Looking for you and me. Just as poems can make ordinary events seem extraordinary, so too can they make extraordinary events seem everyday. This poem is about a pub landlord on a quiet night, not realising that in his stable, the first Christmas is taking place. Saturday night at the Bethlehem Arms <laughs> by Gareth Owen. It's very quiet, really, for a Saturday. <laughs> Just the old couple come to visit relations who took the double room above the yard and were both of them in bed by half nine. Left me with that other one, a stranger. Sat like he was set till doomsday at the corner of the bar, sipping small beer dead slow and keeping mum. Those beady tax collector's eyes of his. 
on, on my reflection in the glass behind me, watching me, watching me. And when he did get round to saying something, his talk was like those lines of gossamer that fishermen send whispering across the water to lure and hook on wary fish. Not my type. And anyway, I'd been on the go since five. Dead beat I was. Some of us had a bed to go to, I thought to myself. I was just about to call time when the knock come at the door. At first I was for turning them away. We only have two rooms, see, and both of them were taken. But something desperate in the woman's eyes made me think again, and I told them they could rough it in the barn if they didn't mind the cows and mules for company. I know, I know, soft, that's me. <laughs> I yawned, locked up, turned out the lights, rinsed my hands to lose the smell of beer, went up to bed. It's a day like any other. That's how it is. Nothing much ever happens here. <laughs> the theme of this extract from The Tempest, a speech given by the magician Prospero, is endings. The actors disappear into thin air, a phrase which was coined here by Shakespeare, the giant of English poetry. And thank you, Simon, for rounding off the show. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. And our little life is rounded with a sleep. Thank you, thank you, thank you.